Today we are taking a break from Bill's sermon series on letters from prison, and I decided just to turn to the common lectionary, and there were two particular texts prescribed for today that really spoke to me. So the first of them is from our Hebrew scriptures from the book of Nehemiah. We rarely hear this in worship. It's just a small book at the back. Uh, but Nehemiah wrote of the Israelite return to Jerusalem in the fifth century before the Common Era, after their Babylonian exile. When they returned, they found that the temple and the wall had been ruined, and while in exile, they had also forgotten much of their faith. This is the story of people who rebuild and reclaim their way of life as intended by God. In the chapters preceding the text we're about to hear, Nehemiah lists long, long names of families with individual numbers of people by family. He has genealogies, and he has 42,000 people in total, and he tells you he's got 42,000 some odd people listed, along with also their servants, slaves, donkeys, singers, horses, mules, and camels. It's a big group that came back. For these people, Nehemiah offers a rare glimpse, or from these uh, people, Nehemiah offers a very rare glimpse into what the ancient understanding of the role of scripture was like. It's a precious story of people who are and are transformed by worship. So, as I read, listen for the repetition and listen for God's word as I read verses from Nehemiah chapter 8. All the people gathered together in the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could hear with understanding. This was on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women, and all who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above the people when he opened it, and all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, and lifted up their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshipped God with their faces to the ground. As they were hearing, the Levites helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. So they read from the book, from the law of God with interpretation, and the people gave the sense that they understood the reading. And all the people then went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Our second reading is from the Christian scriptures. It's from Paul's first letter to the people in the town of Corinth. We read this last fall in our Bible study read-along and I thought we'd share it again in worship today. A bit of context. The early church in Corinth was vibrant with diversity. It had Jews and Gentiles, it had educated and common laborers, it had the wealthy and the poor. It was filled with energy and growth, and not surprisingly for such a budding congregation with such diversity, their life was very, very messy together, prompting Paul to write not one but many lengthy letters addressing how to live together in the common bonds of Christ. He bluntly tells them at first to stop suing each other. That's the way by which some people were making money that the wealthy who had a friend of the judge would sue the poor. Paul said stop. Paul also told them some sexual relationships are inappropriate. He admonishes men and women to assume respectable and respecting behavior 
Paul was quite blunt. He wrote of table fellowship and of hospitality. But when he got to one of the messiest areas of their life together, which was worship, he turns around. See, some members were flaunting their abilities to speak in tongues and were claiming superiority because of that. And as they worshiped God, they began to divide and belittle others. So this is where Paul's letter is crescendoing with rhetoric, and you will hear Paul tell a funny story, employing a common Greco-Roman image and metaphor of the body, but Paul turns it upside down. So imagine being in a house church in Corinth, sitting shoulder to shoulder with other baptized believers as this letter is read, and listen for God is telling them and for what God is telling us. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as God chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the the members of the body that may seem weaker are indispensable, and those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor, that we think less honorable, and those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor, and our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members don't need any of this. But God has so arranged the body, giving greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it, and if one member is honored, all rejoice together in it. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. So strive for the greater gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. Please pray with me. Living and loving God, you have made yourself known to us in so many and various ways. We're grateful today for scripture, whose reading reveals your care for people of ancient days and for the people here today. Open our eyes as we read it and our ears as we hear it. Open our minds to understand it that our hearts may feel it and then spark our energies to act upon it. We pray this in our Savior's name, amen. Author Joan Didion wrote, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And it's so true. We love novels and biographies and movies and sitcoms and music and all the ways in which we tell stories. It's from Bible stories and family legends and our own memories. Stories shape our value, they preserve our past, and become the lens through which we can see the future. 
And when we hear another person's story, even if of another time and place, race or gender, their stories of being human can connect to our joys and struggles and then bind us to them in inexplicable ways. So I've got a couple stories for you this morning. The first was when I was in my early 20s. I was with a large number of other 20-somethings, and we went to Atlanta for the grand finale of my IBM training, and this was the grand finale called Sales School. So imagine a bunch of fiercely competitive, high-energy, glib, rather creative, budding sales reps thrown together for two weeks in a class. We quickly found that all of us had been charged by our manager. Do not come back unless you are ranked number one. In Atlanta, we were steeped in method and skills. We heard stories from those who had quote-unquote rung the bell, and when you did well, you got to go up in class and ring the bell in front of everybody. You got to the point you loved ringing the bell. We practiced and practiced until we bled IBM blue. This was back in the olden days. IBM could feel like a religion. It inspired, or shall I say, demanded unwavering brand loyalty to Big Blue. But it also carried with it a promise that if you performed, supposedly you'd be taken care of. In our home cities, most of us either lived alone or a few had spouses. But when we were in Atlanta, we lived in apartments with two to three other sales reps, and we shared meals and cars, and we engaged in all the ways of entertaining ourselves that 20-somethings with lots of energy will do in Atlanta for two weeks. The weekend in between, I vividly remember resting on a Sunday afternoon from my homework, and I was almost dreading the next week. But it wasn't from the class and the calls and the prep. I had reached my capacity, and I was convinced my body simply could not have any more fun. <laughs> we had a great time. And I often said that if a travel agent could tell me, I promise you the same amount of fun on this vacation, I would pay any price for it. But that's the single moment that I really remember of my two weeks in Atlanta. As the week drew to a close, they had done all they could to mold us into the, shall I say, standard issue IBM rep. We were trained to be lone rangers out in front of competition with our clients and also in competition with others in the company because we were always ranked according to our value. Now, I have some great dear friends from IBM, but I don't remember anybody from that community because nothing that we did, even all of the fun, nothing that we did inspired connections because we were all focused on being number one. Nehemiah tells a different story of community. After a long exile in Babylon, the Israelites had returned to Jerusalem only to find the temple destroyed, but they were there, all 42,000 in donkeys and camels, and they were going to reclaim their place in the city. So they rebuilt physically, but they still lived in a culture that continued to challenge their Jewish faith, and they needed to re be reminded of who they are as God's people. So how do you remember who you are? You tell stories. Ages ago, God had given the Israelites some wonderful gifts, land, security, abundance, and prosperity. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann has said that the memory of those gifts of God's covenant relationship was the glue that bound the Israelites together. It also kept them close to God, reliant upon God, responsive to God, but that when they were in exile, no longer worshiping together or reading scripture, they lost this memory. So when the work was finished of rebuilding the wall and the temples, everyone in Jerusalem, and we heard it said several times, 
all the men and the women. That's a Hebrew phrase meaning as one person. As one person they gathered. And Ezra opened his scroll and began to read of God's covenant with Abraham and Sarah. God's liberation of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. Of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments on the mountain. And God's other instructions for how to live a faithful and enduring life in community that cares for the welfare of one another. As Ezra read, the priests stopped to translate, and not just from Hebrew into their common language, Aramaic, but also interpreted the meaning for that time and place there in Jerusalem in the fifth century. And that revealed a truth that transcended all of the decades in between. They read for hours and hours. And with understanding, the centuries dissolved and the people experienced God's revelation all over again through their own human experience. And hearing the stories, these former exiles discovered that they were part of God's story. They had wandered from God's word, just like the ancient Israelites. Moses had received the laws from God on a mountaintop as the Israelites were on their way to the promised land. And these were the same laws that Ezra read as he stood above the people in the promised land. Nehemiah's story shows us how scripture and worship transforms lives and creates community. They were of different families and trades, all 42,000, but they understood as one body, and then they rejoiced and cared for each, each and every one. God's word can do that, because the scriptures gives us a lens to look at this world and our lives through God's eyes. We're reminded of God's presence and love, particularly when our own worth might be questioned and we feel alone or abandoned. So here's my second story. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Atlanta again, this time for an entirely different class. Some of you know I'm studying at the Emory University and I gathered with some of my cohort for another class that was a week. So imagine 10 ministers from different states and none of us were 20. Different states, denominations, and churches. There was an African-American who was the granddaughter of a slave. We found out that she was sitting next to a young white guy whose father had been the head of the Ku Klux Klan. A Korean spoke of ministering in a Muslim community. One guy had been a corporate lawyer before ministry and another ran IT. And then I found out that another one of my colleagues had played semi-pro ultimate frisbee as a way to travel through Europe. Who knew there was semi-pro ultimate frisbee? So I joined 10 ministers and a New Testament scholar. There were 12 of us, and we sat in a room for an entire week reading scripture together. We read scripture every day, all day long. We would read aloud and stop after a sentence or even just a phrase. We shared impressions. We questioned translations and interpretation. We argued over meaning. And we encountered the text through another's point of view. It was as if I was reading scripture through a kaleidoscope. Now, you know what a kaleidoscope looks like. It's a telescope, or so it looks like, but at the end, rather than see through, it has crystals and a mirror, such that as you slowly turn the cylinder, you see different images emerge. Reading scripture in community was as if I had a kaleidoscope, and every time we got to a new story, new depth and new meaning from these familiar stories emerged. In our week together, we found it was safe to be vulnerable. No one was looking to be number one. It just wasn't going to happen. No one was going to be number one. We shared our experiences of growing closer and also distant from Jesus. 
We had personal stories of love and of loss and of ministry. And over the week, our community prayers changed as well. Our stories allowed us to see beyond those filtered images that we always present to the, each other. But when that filtered image dropped, we could then see the, a glimpse of the divine in the other person. I'm sure it's my age, but after only one week, I had reached the limit intellectually and spiritually. I was exhausted and it took me a good three days to recover once I got home. But in that time, I experienced how personal stories and the biblical stories show us the face of God in the other, not in spite of, but only because of our great differences. And its differences, that's the way in which the church is cast worldwide. The early church in Corinth had been fueling their differences, and that's what we heard about from Paul and we continue to hear about in the church today. Because those differences were the extent by which they were fueling divisions and creating damage. The Apostle Paul wrote his letters just a few years after Jesus had gone around dismantling boundaries and hierarchies and distinctions. But yet the people in the churches were already thinking once again that some of them were better than others, possessing more prized gifts such as the ability to speak in tongues or to prophesy. But Paul is oh so clever. For the hardest parts of his letter, he's not quite so blunt. He employs a metaphor that would have been commonly used at the time in Greco-Roman speeches, and that was a metaphor for parts of the human body to represent the community. From this image of differing members within the body, an orator would argue that diversity of the body reflects diversity in society, and that some people, just as some parts of the body, are more highly prized, and those with less appealing functions were inferior and to be shamed. Usually, this metaphor reinforced hierarchy and discrimination. And that's exactly why Paul uses it. He's the master. In a surprising twist, and with talking feet and self-deprecating ears, Paul turns upside down what was commonly thought. There are no members of the body more valued, nor do any of them ever carry shame. All are essential, and all are part of God's divine plan. All the members of the church were baptized into the body of the church, into the body of Christ. All received the same spirit. All members are essential in their gifts for this community to be able to survive and thrive. So what might have just been a letter to them is now known as Holy Scripture. They received it sitting shoulder to shoulder in a church, some of those who were competing for top position. And that's the same letter that's received in this community We don't receive it in private study or in private correspondence, but for us to hear together. It's that letter and the Spirit of God that united them and that unites us together with them and with each other today. As someone has famously said, there are many things we can do on our own, but being a Christian is not one of them. We're experiencing that today at Kenilworth Union. Now, I'm sure that there are many times in our almost 125-year history when it was glaringly obvious, but two weeks ago in a meeting about rummage, I experienced this ideal of church unfold before my eyes. Now, we've known and we've communicated that rummage was seriously at risk in 2016. We had lost two of our beloved leaders who just weren't going to be leaders anymore and asked for others to step up. So it was a question of who would lead, what would we do, Do we have the resources to do this? Would anyone show up to reimagine the future? So there was a room set aside with 10 chairs. 
and 25 people showed up. The varied tasks were identified and people started to talk one at a time and we listened to each other. Finally, someone said, well, I can do this. And those of us listening heard a passion and a commitment rising from a unique talent and an experience. And then another would add, well, I'm kind of busy this summer, I'm going to be a grandmother again, but I know I can do that. And the meeting continued with such diversity, not willy-nilly, but it was revealing very pragmatic skills and ideas. You see, somebody needs to order the porta potties and another needs to sort the clothes. We need both. Someone needs to count money behind the scenes and another's going to stand out front and be security. All are essential and not one matters more than the other. Rummage is the way this church, the people, become the body of Christ. But this body is not confined to these walls. There are those that will receive the t-shirts and the books, and there are those that will receive aid from agencies that are funded because of rummage. The passion that sprang in the room was not from the desire to sort through mountains of trash bags of clothes, but to care for the other members of the body of Christ who are in need. So often our relationships are functional or transitory, but not our relationships in Christ. They exist as visible expressions of the love of God, a love that takes delight in the presence of the beloved, however different he or she may be. As a part of the body, we share in each other's lives, in good and in bad times, and as we do, we become tangible expressions of God's care. We know God loves us when we are held in this community of love. We read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's not read as much as what follows immediately. But what follows immediately makes most sense and matters most after we've known about being told to be one in Christ and to honor our diversity and to learn to get along because Paul shows us a more excellent way in chapter 13 with his famous love hymn. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous or boastful. It is in God's love that we learn to get along. So let me go back to the beginning. Was it necessary for the ancient Israelites to reclaim their place in God's story through scripture and in worship? Were worship and scripture necessary? They had lived in decades in exile without these memories and rituals, and they probably could have lived in Jerusalem blending into the culture of the day. I will say to you it was not necessary for scripture and worship. Was it necessary for me to read scripture for five long days? Not really. We could have heard lectures, written papers, and done more small group work and listened to some sermons. Was it necessary for the people in Corinth to turn their world upside down? We still struggle with the notion of diversity amidst unity. So I've listed long questions of was it necessary, and the obvious answer is no, because these are all gifts that we receive. They are not necessary. These are gifts for us to receive. The biblical text does nothing in and of itself and nothing by itself. But when we read the laws and the stories in community, opening ourselves up to the interpretation and sharing the stories of our lives, we receive the Spirit of God and can again experience God's covenant that's promised for each of us. It's a gift to worship and to sing and to hear music and to pray and to read. And it is a gift to be the church. Amen. Amen.